Hello, and welcome to Unsheathed with your hosts, Kyle Gold and Cam Hirosaki. We hope that you enjoy the program. Please stick around afterwards. There'll be cake and blowjobs. Hi, welcome to Unsheathed number 58. I'm Kyle Gold, Fox in Residence. Oh. I'm stepping on your toes, Cam Hirosaki. That's all right. I just sort of added that little bit on to the end. And we have a special, very, very special guest in the studio with us today. Yeah, I'm not too, but apparently I rode here on the special bus, I guess. <laughs> well, it was short at any rate. Um, we're uh, back here in our special mountain location. This will actually be our last show before our live podcast in October. Um, we're going to take a week off, week hiatus to kind of prepare for it and regroup and um, do a bunch of other stuff. Kit's looking kind of confused, um, but this is going to be our last show before the live one, unless we plan to do one sort of remotely. No. Okay. I just thought I'd say that. Kit gets confused when I say things he hasn't told me to. Um, but... Uh, the live show is going to be October 23rd down in San Jose. We're going to post the address. We should have already posted it by this time. And we hope that uh, y'all can show up. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, B-Hop's going to be there. Yes. Uh, we may have Flame Falcon of Anthropodcast. We're going to have refreshing beverages of all different kinds. We may mix up a few Kyle Golds, which is Diet Dr. Pepper and Coke Zeros, apparently. Yeah. And I'm sure there will be wine, because there always is wine. And we'll have some of my books and some CDs to sell, in case you all want to buy some of our stuff, and we'll be right there to sign it. Please buy our CDs. If you don't, this show won't keep going. <laughs> if you don't, we'll shoot this puppy. Oh. Not really. Don't worry. It's not a nice puppy. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, things have been progressing along. I'm still waiting for Out of Position 2 to come back for before final proofs and edits and going off to the publisher. I've seen some of the illustrations. Blotch has been thumbnailing for it, and I'm very excited and tail-waggy, as Hirosaki and NotTube can attest right now. I think I've seen at least two of those thumbnails. I, I, I haven't seen any yet. I want to see. Yeah, I'll, I'll show you in a bit. Neat. I meant attested more to my tail being waggy. Well, yes, but I mean it's behind the chair, so. Wow. That's true. It's behind his butt. But you can still see the tip of the tail. Anyway, so not too, what have you been up to since the last time we had you here in our discreet mountain bunker location? Well, I've been in cold storage until you pulled me out again. Oh, well, that's true. They just keep me in a freezer until I can special guest again. <laughs> the nice thing is I age so much more slowly than they do. And that's why we call him Otter Pop behind his back. You do? Oh, is that why? Because I had a reason. totally different... Yeah. What What was it? I, yes, well, please explain. Yeah, I, would, I would like to know the reasoning behind this. <laughs> and these as long as are we're, not the hammer. <laughs> as long as we're airing secrets here, please. I promise not to air my own dirty laundry on the podcast. That's good policy. Anyway, I'm again outnumbered by otters. and uh, Which is always a good place to be. Uh, well, I, unless you're an alligator, I guess. <laughs> we do annoy alligators away. Yes, you have that ability. I'm certainly good at being annoying. 
And uh, and and what have you been working on lately? Speaking of things that are annoying. So actually, since we last spoke, you and me, gentle readers, uh, I actually haven't really been doing any work on Summerhill, but not because I hate it. No, I'm actually um, <laughs> mentally putting together another short story. I do hate it, but that's not why I've been doing work on it. <laughs> Leaving my hatred for my own piece of work aside. Um, now, I mentioned that I have a story that I need to write for something which I can't talk about, which is not the same as my secret project, trademark. Uh, this is another thing. But I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but uh, I actually have a really fun... <laughs> when you have too many secrets, the readers are going to lose interest unless you give them something to think about. I will say, though, I was talking to one of my uh, favorite editor people, and I gave him my story idea. And when I was done telling him what it was about, he just sort of stopped and then said, you know, I think that that right there pretty much highlights the difference between you and Kyle as writers. You're the most oblique otter I've ever known. <laughs> and I, I know, seriously. You have the power of allusion. You ever, just ever, refer to things the entire time. I ever since I went to Rainforest, I came back and just, I can't talk about things and I'm totally unsexy. I'm sorry, I'm not sexy. We maybe need to pull up that Zouse picture again. Okay. <laughs> the most well, important thing is to believe in yourself. That's like, right. Wrap that's, the wrap up. That's the it true was, sexiness. It was never the magic pen. It was you all <laughs> along. You can write Summerhill without your pen. <laughs> I'm just thinking Sideshow Bob pricking his finger and writing in blood. <laughs> Use a pen, Sideshow Bob. Although I do feel like I am pouring my blood into this Summerhill thing, and I believe it was Tyrion who said that it, it's either going to make me or kill me or whatever it was. No, what does not kill you makes you stronger. Or both. Yeah. Or stranger in this case. Yeah, well, that too. Um, yeah, I think I put a quote up on my FA page, which is just about the one from Red Smith where he says, writing is easy, I just sit down and open a vein. Yeah. <laughs> Well, since we're pretty boring tonight, let's go right to the emails. <clears throat> tonight we're talking, apparently, about um, things that are cliché. Things that are cliché. Dear Mr. Golden Hirosaki-san, Hi there. Hello. First, let me quickly say that I've enjoyed your stories and novels, and I'm anticipating Summerhill and Out of Position 2 as well. Yay. I've got a few questions for you guys. I dabble very lightly in writing, and I generally have very little trouble being evil to my characters to create conflict and drama. Yay. My problems lie in other areas, trust me. In recent months, I've tried to write furry short stories, and I've found it significantly harder to get myself to make bad stuff happen to them. Have you ever encountered this problem? I think it might have something to do with the whole animals are innocent and cute thing being transferred to furry characters, despite the fact that they're equally capable of doing bad things. Another question. You earlier had a podcast dealing with flawed fiction, specifically furry fiction. My second question is somewhat related to that. Are there stories that you've read that either seem cliche or a bit silly, but you enjoy anyway? They're not necessarily poorly written, it's just that the ground has been trodden before or the plot is a little stupid, but the story is still entertaining. Thinking back, a lot of my favorite young adult novels read like this to me nowadays. 
I can see how they were essentially flawed, but with the rose-tinted glasses of nostalgia, I can still enjoy them, and there are some books and shows that to this day I enjoy even though I realize that objectively the story, while consistent, grammatically correct, and even interestingly written, is somewhat predictable and overdone. For a concrete example of this, I turn to Burn Notice, which is undeniably cheesy, pretty formulaic, and all around one of my favorite shows on television. I was wondering if you've ever seen that in any form of fiction, but especially in furry fiction, and what your feelings are on whether the... Oh, wow. I'm sorry. I had to re-edit that sentence. What your feelings are on whether the overused stereotypes, tropes, and plots can still be entertaining, even if nothing new is being done with them. I hope I got my point across, and I hope I'm not retreading ground that y'all feel was dealt with in the last podcast on this subject. Anyway, thanks a lot. Sorry these aren't really connected questions. Yours, Ben. Okay, so first of all, the reason that Burn Notice is one of your favorite shows on television is because Burn Notice is awesome, and you don't need to apologize for it. But uh, I, I hate to confess that I've not seen any Burn Notice, but is it formulaic? And I mean, if you boil it down to the story, is it awesome because the the way it's executed is particularly good and the acting is I guess is it's good. similar like to House where there's a formula to the episode structure but that doesn't negate the storytelling and it doesn't negate, you know. It's a really fun character show okay. and you know, I actually it's one of my favorite shows too. It starts up again in November. I can understand criticizing things for being formulaic. If if you if you if you've seen something before and it doesn't have anything new to offer you when you're watching it, then, then it's boring. But I don't think that by itself, and a lot of people are going to not like the, like me saying this, but I don't think that by itself formulaic is necessarily a bad thing. The fact is, you know, there are if you're if you're doing storytelling. Stories follow a formula at, at their very basic level. They follow a formula, and we enjoy these stories because there's that conflict between wondering if that formula is going to be satisfied in some way and 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 expecting it to. Um, One of the things that, that we learned from our screenwriting classes was our teacher said you have to give the audiences what they expect mm-hmm. and surprise them. And so, when you get something that does not follow the formula that's completely original, half the time people don't like it. Yeah. Because it doesn't follow what they expect. But I think what people mean, a lot of people complain about movies or books being predictable. And I kind of view that as, I'm going to sort of veer into analogy territory here. But a friend of mine once said about relationships, if the relationship itself is working, then none of the little things make a difference to you. And I think it's kind of the same with a book or a movie. If the book or movie works and engages you, then you don't care if it's formulaic. You don't care if the plot's been done before. But if you're not engaged, then you kind of look for things that bother you, and people will come up and say, oh, well, you know, I knew from the first chapter what was going to happen to this person. But, I mean, yeah, exactly. And even even if you know, like... The whole idea, the whole point of dramatic tension, the way that the reason that dramatic tension works is because we're wondering if what we understand to be the basic formula, the way that things should work out, will actually happen, and and either it, either that's delayed, or it or it's satisfied, and you know when it's satisfied, that's the end of your story or 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 your book. Things have worked out 
at least somewhat in the way that people expect them to. Yeah, right. Although, I mean, and if you look at it, I can't think of a furry fiction example unless you want to pull out my books, which the romances are all pretty formulaic in terms of the romance plot. I mean... Well, as far as you know, weird gay romance goes, maybe. Right. But, I mean, the Harry Potter books, they're pretty standard. Mm. I mean, they follow the kind of the good versus evil mythic flow, I mean, within each book and then throughout the series, too. Yeah. Or if you want to look at movies, people have turned screenwriting into a science. And there are plenty of really good movies on that where you can see them hit every note of screenplay 101, like, exactly. And, you know, that's formula. Well, Avatar. I was, I was going to say mm-hmm. Avatar, but I think my mentioning... I, I, I was going to say that, but I thought people would think that I was using it as a bad example. But, you know... Avatar as a story, it is a solid story. I I enjoyed Avatar quite a bit. Yeah, and there I was, did too. and apart from the set design, there was nothing original about the story. Right, but it was you know it, it was all in the execution. Right, and I you know, I enjoyed and he hit, it. He I hit saw it twice. Beats, he hit all beats well, and yeah. and the story works. It's like you know it was a it wasn't. A surprising story. It didn't really catch anyone off guard, but that doesn't mean it was bad or it was poorly done. And if you look at, you know, if you look at the origins of storytelling, you know, when you when you gathered around your your campfire in the evening, you didn't go in expecting to hear something that was completely unrelatable and a story that you'd never heard before. People told the same stories over and over. There was right. ritual in it, and there yeah. was satisfaction in it. And that's at the heart of everything that we do, you know, with storytelling. Is we're we're telling these stories. These it's telling old stories in new ways. And and that that's the aim. That's why we have Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces yeah. and the Journey of the Hero and all that stuff. Exactly, because those are the tropes that yeah. stuck with people as they were handed down. Like, like when it comes to tropes, you know, like if you go to TV tropes, they have it's like the size of Wikipedia, just these entries of things following tropes. But they, as I like to emphasize, you know, tropes are not bad by themselves. And the same thing with stereotypes. Stereotypes exist because there's an element of truth to them. I think what people object to uh, when they talk about something lacking originality is that really, for them, it lacks authenticity. So when they think that someone is hitting these notes in a story, they're hitting them because they've read other stories that do that, and they've seen other movies uh, do that, and and they're imitating it, rather than doing something that that rings true and believable and 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 from someone's own experiences or ideas. And that's exactly what I was going to say, is that you you use those tropes, but I think when people complain that something was predictable, it's because they were expecting the ending, but the story did not justify the beats that it hit. Right. So, like in a romantic comedy, if you go to a romantic comedy and you don't think that the two leads are going to end up together at the end of the romantic comedy, then it's either your first movie ever in the whole world, <laughs> or you don't learn. But... There's a difference between a romantic comedy that builds to that point and justifies it and makes it work and makes you believe that that is happening at the end. And a romantic comedy where, as some of my friends say, well, you know, he's the only attractive single guy in the movie and she's the only unattractive single woman in the movie. So they fight for an hour and a half and then in 10 minutes they marry each other. And there's no dramatic tension there. There's right. never, there's never the sense that things are, that, that it's even a, a difficult journey to get to, get to the points. The points have to be earned. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and 
to ground this in the relevance of furry writing, as I think we've probably mentioned on this show before, the whole, you know, you have your story that starts with gay teenage furry wakes up in the morning, looks at himself in the mirror, goes to school, runs into the guy he has a crush on, randomly discovers he's gay, goes home, has sex, falls in love. And that's why those are unsatisfying, because most of us, with a little bit of experience in the real world, understand that simply having sex with someone for the first time usually does not lead to waking up the next day being in love and together and happy for the rest of your lives. I distinctly remember the first time I had sex feeling this, like, like, where was, like, the chorus of angels that was supposed to herald this amazing moment? It's like, okay, I've had sex now. Like, I don't really feel like that different a person for it. Yeah. No, I, I So I, I just agree. kept having sex over and over, trying to capture that moment that never... No, that's not true. That's a good story <laughs> idea, though. It is true, technically. Oh, my God. I have a great idea for a story now. <laughs> is it called The Perfect O? <laughs> Speaking of which, in episode 55, I mentioned the backwards plane landing with Oprah Dream, and I said, I don't even know what that's a reference to. I remember what it's a reference to. It's from a a comedy bit by a comedian named Kyle Cease. C-E-A-S-E. There you go. Sorry. K-Y-L-E? Kyle. Yes, not like K-Y-E-L-L. Okay. Normal Kyle. So basically, with originality and and formulaity, you you have to figure out a way to tell a story that that is not very original, but tell it in a way that makes people think it is. Exactly. If, if you could tell a story that was completely original, I think everyone would hate it. Because nobody would be able to relate to it. Yeah. Well, and that, yeah, and that, that gets the whole point about writing aliens and writing furries and stuff. And if you make the furries too animalistic, then people aren't going to be able to relate to them because, you know, you, you can say, well, you know, in the wild, wolves actually blah, 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 blah. Uh, Yes, but these characters are also partly people, and that's the part you need to be able to relate to, because you're a people. Right. And going back to the first part of the question, do you feel it harder to be evil to furry characters than to non-furry characters? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I will say that... I don't either, but I've had a lot of practice. I will say that, you know, it can be, like, being cruel to your characters can be an emotional experience when you're writing. I think so. And I I would almost think that if... Ben, uh, and I don't know a Ben other than his name, but if he's a furry, then there may f- there, he may feel a connection kind of to furry characters, and in writing about them, may feel sort of protective of them. Like, this is, yeah. this is kind of what I identify with and what I want to be, and so it's a lot harder for me to be mean to them than it is to be mean to people, because I want to be mean to people every minute of every day, when they cut you off on the highway, or... You know, stand in front of you when you're trying to watch the game. I do believe that everybody in a public place should look around to make sure they're not between me and a television when I'm trying to watch sports, because otherwise it's just rude. Yeah. Fuck those the, people. Yeah, it, or I mean, a concert. It it can it can hurt to be to be mean to the characters you like, but it hurts so good. Like uh, that's that's where. It's, oh. it's okay It's okay to have a little hurt-comfort dynamic going on in your own mind yeah. in the stories. It's just I if mean, you build a story around it, it's not very satisfying. But Yeah, I mean, generally, in, in, what, what was it from the – been reading this book uh, that uh, Foosball recommended called Between the Lines. And uh, one of the things that uh, the author says is in, in, in any – 
in any scene or any chapter, you know, any any major arc, try to figure out what is the worst possible thing that could happen to your character and then do that. <laughs> oh yeah, we we do that. We we did that in our workshops too where they just said take everything to extremes. Because A, you're writing fiction. People don't want to see hyper-realistic stories. But also B, that ramps up the stakes, ramps up the conflict, ramps up the tension. If you know that your villain is willing to go to X, you know, way beyond what normal people would do, then the hero has more cause to be worried. If the hero, when the hero gets into an argument, this is one of the things that I always have trouble with is doing like arguments like right now to position two arguments between Dev and Lee, getting them amped up because, you know, I have to take it a little more extreme, but keep it realistic. And it's like I say, you know, if if uh, if you don't care, then your readers won't care. So exactly. when when you care that when you care that you're doing bad things to your characters and that they're you're putting them through through hard and unpleasant times, that's 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 good. And, that's a good and, sign that you've made them like real. And and you know, it, it may be harder to do it, but once you do it, it makes the writing go. It gives the writing momentum because and it gives you, it a lot you, of energy. You're, you're, you're invested exactly. You're yeah. invested in it, and your readers should be too. At that point, exactly. So, have we talked this point into the ground? I think we have. Right. <laughs> Greetings, Fox and Otter. I enjoyed episode 45, in which you came out of your sheath to critique and describe how you'd edit a few paragraphs submitted to you by one of the listeners. Well, that was more than three months ago. Yeah, wow. To answer a question posed uh, during that show, yes, I would like to hear you do this again. When you do, my suggestion is that you choose selections that include different types of content of discourse than what you've covered in your previous critique episodes. The example you used was largely expository, giving some information and background on the story setting. If and when you do it again, it would be particularly I would be particularly interested in hearing you critique a scene that has characters and dialogue in it. Just to break in, uh, we have gotten a couple other... Um, yeah passages to edit and one of the things i think we might try to do after the live show is set up a time to get foosball back on and do another episode like that because yeah. we had a lot of fun doing it and he had a lot oh, yeah. of fun and people I'm seemed sure to did. react very positively to it yeah we got a, got a got a lot of good feedback on that yeah he does like getting his hacksaw out I was wondering what your opinion is of something I've seen many times in furry erotica, enough that it probably qualifies as a cliché. A character gets her or himself into a situation, often as a result of not examining or thinking it through carefully enough, and discovers once they are committed, and it's too late to back out, that they are in deeper and in for a lot more than they had initially anticipated. Now, this can be used as an effective plot device in any number of different types of stories, but what often seems to happen in erotic stories in particular is that the story will only go as far as showing the character getting into the situation, which often involves heavy, some heavy kinks and fetishes, and discovering their predicament, and then the story ends. For example, a femme receives a, femme receives a mystery package that contains a latex bodysuit or some sex toys or bondage gear, possibly high-tech or with magical properties, and she can't wait to try it on, overlooking the instructions and her impatience. She discovers too late that the gear does more than they expected, and furthermore, she is now trapped in it. That's certainly kinky and fetishy. <laughs> This sort of story certainly has its appeal to those who are into the particular kinks the predicament involves, but evidently there are a lot of writers, and I suppose a lot of readers, who feel it's good enough to just leave it at that and end the story there. 
Whenever I read a story with that sort of ending, it usually feels incomplete, leaving me wondering what happens after that. To continue the example above, what did the femme experience while she was trapped, and how did she finally become untrapped? As I said, getting in over your head can be a great plot device, but in most other genres, to end a story that way would be seen as, as a cliffhanger ending. Why do you suppose it's considered acceptable to do this in erotica, and what is your opinion of the practice? Sorry about the wall of text. Thanks for doing a great show, and keep up the good work, Storm Kitty. Good to hear from you again, Storm Kitty, by the way. Yay. Um, I have don't know if I've ever seen that in a, for erotica story. Have, have either of you guys? I think I have. Yeah. I think it's, that people are trying to shoot for sort of the Otter Limits uh, sort of ending, you know, where, oh, now, and now look at this, look at this twist and how, how terrible things you have, have gotten oh, now. Yeah. So the reader's kind of left to imagine... Now that he had eaten one fox, he knew he would never be able to bring himself to stop. But there was time for sex now. <laughs> um, but yeah. he broke How do you follow that one he, up? Yeah, I was going to say, but he'd, he'd broken his only pair of condoms? No. <laughs> oh, silly. You'd never see condoms in furry erotic fiction. Yet. Except in that one story I wrote that nobody liked. I want to say I put it in. Condomtopia? <laughs> no, starting from scratch. Mercantic condoms? <laughs> wow, that would be fucked up. I mean, like, more than Mercantic's fucked up already. Well, yeah, I was going to say, you're starting from fucked up and... The Georgian horse? Right. So Kyle and I kind of touched on this at Rainforest, and I don't remember if it was during the erotic writing panel or our podcast, but we were talking about... When you're writing about kinks and fetishes? Oh. A little bit. I don't think it really relates to what she's asking here, though. Well, a lot of times... we. Oh, wait, no. We were, we were talking about this on no, the show. We, we were talking about whether what it takes to write fetishes. Right. But we were also talking on this show, I think it was in episode 55, about how erotica, in its pure form, really just comes down to describing a situation that's sexy and hoping that it turns out a little hot. Right. And so, it sounds like he's describing specific kink and fetish stories that are designed to cater to an audience who wants to read about a kink or fetish, and doesn't necessarily want to think about consequences past that. I think a lot of people approach erotica um, sex stories like uh, in, in much the same way they would a horror story. You know, uh, just replace killing with sex, uh, and you know the 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 and important once you thing get is to the point where the killing is inevitable. Right, exactly. Why continue the story? Each, yeah, exactly. And and then you know the character thinks they've gotten away from it. You know, oh, it's all over, or is it? No, you know. Right, right. Now it now things are even worse at the Thanks, end. Thanks, August Durla. The, the the important thing is not is not what no August not a character would not arc. leave anything unsaid. The important thing isn't isn't a character arc or 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 a uh, or a plot arc. It's it's the 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 mood, the emotion, the feeling. Right. So just replace scary with sexy. And I mean, I think I think the approaches are actually pretty similar a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of fetish stories that I've seen that have this kind of thing in it. Um, the goal to me seems to be showing someone who doesn't think they have that fetish and then through whatever means they discover that they really do and they like it and they want to keep doing it. It's um, almost Pentest forum style. Yeah, kind of. Um, and I, I won't, <clears throat> I, I, I won't go on about 
somebody sort of stumbling into something rather than making an actual choice because it's not that kind of story as you say it's not a character arc story it's i'd love to see one where like the fetish happened like they into the fetishy situation and then at the end they're just all you mr horse no sir i didn't like it (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was all right but i probably would do it again Uh, oh i'm trapped in this leather suit and now i hate it (laughs) this is like hell oh i'm all sweaty and ah and it's chafing yeah I say I know one person who didn't do this is Fuzzwolf, where he has his Sinclair and Trevor stories, where it's like it does sort of go through the ramifications about finding out that you're into something you didn't think you were. No, Fuzz has yeah. good follow through on his stories. Yeah. He had he had a series of stories with Valentine too. I don't think those were the Trevor stories, but the no. Valentine stories kind of went the same way, where they're like we're going to play at something and then the play gradually goes on to more and more fetishes but everyone's kind of into it and he does see it through to the end so i don't know i've never done a story like that i don't read too much furry erotic anymore so um i've not run into that personally then there was my least favorite story i wrote not the one that other people don't like but the one that i don't like which is about I wrote it as an exercise to see if I could write a fetish I didn't have, and it basically ends like with this character like basically like left out in the cold and completely not enjoying himself. But hey, like, what's it for me to say? Like, oh, I wrote a story in which a character ended up miserable. Ironically, I guess that's not really. Ironically, at the end of the story, you did find out that you actually really did enjoy that fetish, and you couldn't stop. So you know. Oh. <laughs> And I haven't stopped. I'm going to write a story about an otter who writes fetishy stories and gets himself into fetishes that way. There's no... There's (laughs) no... Like the Silar of fetishes, basically. (laughs) Oh. Now now I'm just thinking this is like a trail of little stories with their first paragraphs cut off and (laughs) their fetishes have been absorbed. (laughs) Anyway. You're welcome. The legend said his wicks never ended. Is that from the third season? Probably. Okay. I will say... We didn't watch that. Back when they started giving people fetishes and taking them away, just randomly. Just randomly, yeah. I will say and the very first... And there was an eclipse, and that ruined all the fetishes <laughs> for a little while. Now while. I can only have one fetish at a time. <laughs> I but I get you. to have whichever one I want. <laughs> I will say, the very first time I pulled up the full list of Wix flags on taps, I looked at some of them and was just like, you made that the fuck up. Like, no. There's no way anyone would legitimately have that as, like, a sexual kink. And now, ten years later, I'm like, no, I believe it. Matt, shut up. Being covered with post-its is legitimate. Haven't you seen Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion? <laughs> and if you haven't, please do. <clears throat> I will put that on my list. You've not seen it? I, I've unfortunately not. <sighs> you have to. Well, it's a pretty good movie. Yes. Yeah. All right. Oh, we'll bring it over with some wine. Why don't you uh, take us home, okay. not tube? Hello, my Hi. name is oh. my name is Alflor. You're reading the letter now. Yes, I'm currently in the process of writing a novel and posting it chapter by chapter on Sofree.com. One of my chapters has the hero and his boyfriend dealing with the aftermath of a tragedy. Within the space of three thousand words, I have four monologues. They aren't terribly long. But one of my readers has commented saying that the monologues just feel overly involved and almost confessional in nature. Now, I never use monologues to tell the story or reiterate what's been said through narrative. My monologues are limited to confessions, apologies, and the occasional attempt to convince a character to change their mind. 
Should monologues be limited? If so, how can you tell when they become too numerous? Also, does that bleed science into a medium that should primarily be about art? Thanks, reading. We're assuming it's from Al Flor, but yes, it's not there's, there's, Yeah, there's nothing at the bottom except that, the horizontal <clears> line. That that just makes me think of the um, the bit in Dead Poet Society when they're going through when he introduces the textbook for the first time and they're talking they're showing a little graph of how great a poem is <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in ages um so I I think I he asked me this question directly and I kind of answered him a while back because I told him you know we'll read it on the podcast but it might take a while we wanted to wait to get not tubes experience here um but I think the fact that he's able to write a sentence like um, I never use monologues to tell the story or reiterate what's been said through narrative is a good sign that he has at least some awareness of how a narrative should flow. Yeah. The fact that you know you shouldn't do that is a very good sign. Yeah. And I think what I had told him initially, and I was a little bit confused about what he means by monologues, if he just means an overly long speech by yeah. a single character, perhaps. And I said, you know, if you think it works for the story then it may not be to the taste of that particular reader, but you get to decide if it works for your story. But monologues. What what are monologues? Do any of us really ever engage in monologues when talking to one another in, in just our natural conversation? I mean, is it something that we as people do? Do we speak to each other in monologues? I know that when I was a child, I used to go into the backyard and speak in monologues for very long periods of time, working through different emotional issues that I had, practicing the things that I wished I could say to my parents or the bullies <laughs> at school. But I find that as I've gotten older, that was really more an imaginative habit that none of us really ever engage in realistically i think if you're going to put monologue what oh, i was monologuing again <laughs> <laughs> and i'll flow this is why i wanted to wait to have not tube available to address your question because i do that all the time he does it's the same speech actually i only have the one <laughs> cam here is talking i would monologue more but um we interrupt each other too much or i just get flustered and can't talk or i just run out of things to say so spill foamy stuff everywhere. Everywhere. So, <laughs> what do you think about monologues, Mr. Otter? Mr. Other Otter? So, yeah, like when you said, oh, there are monologues, I normally associate monologues with, like, plays. Yeah. And not things that occur in narrative fiction. Are you sure you're not thinking of a soliloquy? <sighs> Perhaps. Perhaps. Because what is a soliloquy? <laughs> no, I think that one has to start What is a soliloquy? To soliloquy or not to soliloquy That is the question Whether Tube or not tube that t- Whether tube a- or not tube Yes <laughs> Whether to slipperier to Splash about with the river clams You're going nowhere good with that one No I never go anywhere good you He's never nobler in the mind No Yes, I am But he does cast slings and arrows of outrageous fortune most lad's characters. Yes. Screw you guys. <laughs> You're too happy. Bam. Especially if they're cute. Yes. Because I, I tears make the sweetest uh, lubricant condiment. <laughs> I was I was trying not to say that. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> 
wow. and tasty because it's sad. Yes. Um, what was I going to say? I, you know, I I think I end up monologuing at all of our live shows because somebody invariably at our live shows asks, you know, why do you do furry writing instead of mainstream writing, or how do you feel the furry community is going to be taken seriously by the mainstream, or some kind of comparison like that? And I always end up going off on some monologue or soliloquy, if you will, about how the furry fandom's all talented and the furry fandom's growing and people just need to keep writing good stuff in the fandom and then it'll blah, blah, blah. I was going to say, you end up monologuing at our live shows because at our live shows, people ask you questions and not me. I always try to include you. <laughs> you do. <laughs> well, that's... I that's all I can ask. <sighs> now I'll do my sad otter monologue. <laughs> I was like, otter martyr. But I think the conclusion is four in 3,000 words might be a little much, but there is no hard and fast formula, as you astutely point out in your letter. Um, yeah, I kind of want to see an example of what these monologues are, because that's the hardest part for me to wrap my head around. I can sort of picture it. Oh, I do want to say Joseph Conrad's characters monologue all the freaking time. Well, if you're talking about like confessionals and that sort of thing, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Heart of Darkness about- is just one big monologue. It is. The narrator's telling the story to the, his people around him. So, like, there's a little framing device at the beginning, and then there's this long speech where he tells this story about Colonel Kurtz and the horror, and then it winds up, and they all kind of sit there, and they're like, who invited you to this party? Does that mean, like, every every first-person story is technically a monologue? Yes. Okay. Well, then it's fine. Yeah. That's bad advice. Don't take that. <laughs> um, I guess... You sort of fall into the trap here of trying to write dialogue that sounds realistic, but the trick to doing that is to not actually write realistic dialogue. Yeah, sort of a you have to write dialogue that's not realistic but sounds realistic. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, ordinarily people don't just sit there and let you ramble without interjecting, even if they're just hackling or something. Yeah, sometimes they do. Not everybody's as rude as we are to interrupt all the time. Yeah, (laughs) do that. Someone who's an interrupter. Knock, knock. No, we're not going there. Um, <laughs> we will ask the questions. Ah, <laughs> oh, that was awesome. Um, wow, and for the first time, we're quoting The Office and not 30 Rock. For now. But for now, yes. But only for now. So, I think the thing that I'd be cautious of with monologues is if you're using them to create this big dramatic point and it feels like if it's big enough to be called a monologue you might be overdoing it a little bit and if it's standing out to your friend and your friend is saying hey this is pulling me out and saying um it it feels too self-conscious then you know pay heed yeah to that i mean it's he's probably not the only reader that it's going to sound like that to. yeah if you can turn it into a dialogue i would say try to if, yeah, if, if even, it's been brought up as a contentious point. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what to tell you to do about this specifically, except just sort of re-examine it. I mean, I can see the use of a monologue as kind of a, a way to build tension, but you want a climactic point to be quicker than a monologue. So you could have yeah. monologue, you could have something build into the end of a monologue, but it sounds like your monologues are 
you know, as he says, confessionals. Yeah. So somebody starts out knowing what they're going to be confessing. And if you do that, then you, I mean, it would be quick. It would be more like somebody starts out intending to say one thing and then through the course of going through the monologue, end up in a different place. You know what you'll sound like if you have too many monologues? Kyle? The Matrix Reloaded. Oh. Yeah. Oh, oh, nobody wants that. Don't sound like that. That is, that is, that is what you get when you have too many monologues. Let's have a moment of silence for the Matrix trilogy. All right, that's enough. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, again, I, I'm trying to imagine like how much text would have to go into like single character dialogue to form a monologue, and trying to picture four of those moments in the span of three thousand words does sound like overdoing it. But again, like I'm not sure if I'm imagining it right. And again, there's no real rule that can't be broken if you know what you're doing. I mean, I can picture. A, I can picture a real good reason to have four monologues in a 3,000-word span, but I'm not sure if that applies to your work. I can picture a real bad reason to have it be that way, too. But Also, are they different characters, or is it the same? Yeah, yeah I was just the, thinking that now, too. Like if, maybe See, that might have, be comedic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of what I was thinking, is if you, if you have a character that's just doing these monologues for comedic effect, but it sounds like it's not. Yeah, monologuing would be something that would be, I think, some, pretty specific to probably one character. So if you have a lot of different people doing it, you're establishing that maybe that may be your own voice intruding too much into the character's voices. And, Hello, Hideo Kojima. And the other thing you can do is... <laughs> Um, break up, break up the monologue. If nobody else even, if nobody else is going to interject to make a dialogue, you can at least break it up with reactions. So presumably, as it goes through the monologue, you want it to have a progression. So like he starts from, you know, my view of this is blah, and then oh, but then you also should know that I did this, and then I went back and did this, and and as an ultimate result. I killed Mrs. Peacock in the study with the wrench. Spoiler. Yeah, most people, I think, but <laughs> but so but you can pause at certain points and then say, and you know, I, you know, while we're here at Mrs. Peacock's funeral, I just wanted to say how sorry I am to all of her family, and then you break it up and it looks at the family and says, I feel a personal sense of responsibility towards the family, and blah blah, blah. and then you break to show more reaction, mm-hmm. and you know, you don't just have the words in a whole block. I think if you're, you know, if you have a long speech like that, essentially there's, there is one basic point like that that someone wants to get to. Right. I killed Mrs. Peacock. And so either the character, when they're giving that monologue, is having a hard time getting this, this thing out, or they're trying to explain themselves, in which case they're likely to say it first. Uh, right. You know? Right. So, you, you, you know, consider the motivations of the, of the character in, in doing this, what it is and, they would be trying to do. And, and, and consider what the other people are doing as the character is saying this monologue, because they're not going to sit, as we've said, they're not going to sit patiently and wait for the character to be done before having a reaction. They're going to react as he goes through the different parts of the monologue. They might ask follow-up questions. <laughs> if they raise their hands politely. <laughs> like, why did you kill her with a wrench? <laughs> what kind of twisted fuck are you? Wasn't there a silver candlestick nearby? Because Carl you were in the library. had the gun. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is, or no, there isn't. Uh, one plus one plus two plus one. One plus one plus two plus one. Anyway. Um, so not, hopefully that case would be one plus two plus one plus one, not one plus one plus two plus one. 
We hope you've enjoyed our show tonight with our special guest, Not Tube. Hi. And we hope that you will also write to us and be part of our ongoing podcast series. We can be reached at unsheathedpodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow us as, as Unsheathed on Fur Affinity. You can also find us individually. I am Kyle on Fur Affinity, K-Y-E-L-L, as noted before. And I'm also Kyle Gold on Twitter and on, what's that other thing? LiveJournal. I am on all three of those as well. You can find me as K.M. Hirasaki with an R. <laughs> yes, and not an L. Yes. And uh, adoration and adulations can be addressed to me as NotTube on Twitter. Are you not also on FA? Um, I am, but I don't check it very often. Oh, I see. Yeah. So adore him on Twitter. Yes. Yes, adore me on Twitter, for there I am loved. <laughs> <laughs> and he also posts very funny Photoshops. Oh, yes, that one. Yes. <laughs> I forgot already. By the time this airs, you'll have forgotten even more. <laughs> yes. But you will get lots of adoration, we hope. And, uh... Thank you, as always, for listening. Come to our live show. We'll post details about it. And keep writing.